Hi, I'm Chris Sprouse, Speaker of the Florida House and former prosecutor. From policy briefs to white papers, court cases to brutal police records, no matter my role, reading has been a central part of my mission to defend American values. But this isn't just my job. Reading books is a personal passion, and getting to know the authors behind the ideas on the page is one of my favorite pastimes. The Red, White, and Blue podcast is now in session. Today, we're talking with Amanda Ripley, a New York Times bestselling author and an investigative journalist. Her previous books include The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way and The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why. She writes for The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Politico, and other outlets, and she hosts the Slate podcast, How To. Previously, Ripley spent a decade writing about human behavior for Time Magazine in New York, Washington, and Paris. Today, we'll be talking to Amanda about her new book, High Conflict, why we get trapped, and how we get out. Please join me in welcoming best-selling author and journalist, Amanda Ripley. Well, welcome, Amanda. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Chris. You know, Amanda, I've had the opportunity to say this to you in person, but I, I want to say it in front of our viewers. You know, you've written uh, three books that I've read, uh, The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way. Um, you wrote, wrote the book about, about survival, uh, who survives when disaster strikes and why, and then this, this latest book, High Conflict. Man, I don't, I don't think I knew that you'd read all three. Listen, I'm I'm an out of a man of Ripley fan. Yeah, this is an impressive, uh, a, a small but mighty club. So I'm honored. Well, what I what I think is great about it is each one of your books, from my perspective as a lawmaker, you know, the smartest kids in the world had I got that way, and the education front was there was actionable things in there for us to do, preparing for disaster, whether it's security in the capital or emergency management, you know, things for us to do. So you you've taken this really solution oriented journalism take of, of putting things out there, which has been wildly helpful to people like me. So thank you for that. I want to talk to you today about high conflict, uh, why we get trapped, and how we get out. Which, in my opinion, is my favorite uh, of the three books uh, that you've written. Uh, what what is high conflict? So high conflict can start about almost anything. That's the amazing thing. But it basically it's what happens when conflict escalates to a point where it sort of takes on a life of its own. So conflict does not behave normally anymore at that level. It usually becomes an us versus them kind of deal. And everything gets very clear in our own minds. And we make a lot of mistakes. So we literally lose our peripheral vision and figuratively uh, in high conflict. So the normal rules of engagement just sort of break down in high conflict. You, you talk, uh, obviously, about high conflict in the book. You know, what is the difference between high conflict that you just described and regular everyday, we'll call it healthy conflict. Yeah. I like to call it good conflict. Cause I feel like, you know, like the late John Lewis used to call it good trouble conflict. We need, you know, it's not that we don't need conflict. I think if anything, we need more good conflict as a country. It's how we get pushed. It's how we challenge each other. It's how we, um, how we make progress quickly, right? Ideally. But then there's a point at which it tips into high conflict and, the conflict becomes the destination, if that makes sense. So probably the biggest difference in the research and in the feeling between good conflict and high conflict is the movement. So in good conflict, there is anger and there is frustration and there is sadness, but there are flashes of understanding and even humor and confusion and more questions get asked. And then you go back to anger and frustration, right? Whereas in high conflict, it's just the same emotions over and over, like that movie Groundhog's Day, right? Like you're just, you're just going back and forth and not going anywhere because in high conflict, the conflict is the destination. There, there, it's not going 
anywhere. And you can actually see that in the data if you study conversations in high conflict versus good conflict. So, so if that, it sounds a little squishy, but I do think that sense of movement is a big distinction. And the other thing is, so, so anger can be part of good conflict, as I mentioned. Uh, one bright line is high conflict, when you see contempt or disgust, those are emotions that are much harder to work with, according to the, the research of an, an intractable conflict, and also in, in marriage, right? Like the biggest, most reliable predictor of who's going to get divorced is contempt, the presence of contempt. It uh, feels like we've got a lot of contempt, uh, certainly in our, in our national conversations today. You, know, you, uh, you talk about the binary, you know, being worried about the dangers of the binary in, in our conversations in our society. You know, what, what is that? What is the danger there? And, and how do we go about sort of deconstructing it? It turns out that if I were to summarize like many decades of research, if you divide humans into two opposing camps, it kind of brings out our worst conflict instincts. Now, if you have good referees and you have some trust in the rules, then it can be okay. You know, as we see in most sports on most days, right? Not all, <laughs> but uh, in general, we humans seem to be wired to collaborate in a lot of situations. But once you divide us into fixed groups, um, we tend to show disproportionate enmity towards the opponent, even when it doesn't really serve our interests. So there's something about that kind of bright line division that brings out worse behavior. And we know from research around the world that countries, democracies, most democracies have more than two parties, for example. Most democracies have proportional representation, which we don't have. Uh, we have a two-party winner-take-all system. So everything is spliced right? Everything is cut in two. And it's, if you really step back, like imagine like a, a space alien came to visit us right now in this podcast, which would be awesome. Um, and they were like, describe your political system in America. And you know, it, it, just in America. Okay, so we're going to generalize about 75 million people and put them in one bucket. I mean, it's madness when you really step back from it, but it feels in your heart like you can, which is the, that is the trance of high conflict. I know you talk a little bit about the kind of the, the two-party system, and that's something George Washington talked about, right? Warned everybody about, hey, don't get locked in this partisan divide or divide the country. But it's interesting, I think, if you look across our history as a country, I think our politics has always sort of been visceral, right? People attack each other. I think that's been around for a while. But I, I certainly think we can look back in decades past and say it worked better then than it does today. So, you know, and the two-party system was there. So how do you, how do you look across sort of American history and the, the history of the two-party system and say, hey, you know, it, why is it worked then, but it doesn't work now? Well, I think there's a lot of different forces, right, that have interacted to get us to this special place that we're in uh, right now. And, you know, we don't have time to go into all of them, and, and you know about many of them better than I do. I would say if I had a sort of grand unified theory about why we are in the place we're in, it's one that I would borrow from uh, John Powell, who's at Berkeley um, at the Othering and Belonging Institute. And what he has said, after looking at this for many, many years, back before it was fashionable, basically the pace of change in our society, technological change, social change, economic change, um, the, the pace of information coming at you, right, from faraway places that you've never been, um, all of these things are not 
comfortable for mammals, right, to process. That level of change is very uncomfortable. And humans crave psychological certainty and predictability. So in that level of unease, that sort of malaise, that sort of fear, I think is what it is for a lot of us, we will look to find a story to explain it, right? A story to explain this unease and do something with it that feels like we have, we are clawing back control over it. And I feel like that's a totally normal and understandable reaction to, to change and uncertainty. The problem is, you know, when you have conflict entrepreneurs come along who are happy to give you a story to scapegoat some group or another and simplify reality in a way that ultimately is going to make things worse for everyone, right? And you actually see this in a very micro way with any ugly divorce. If you ever know anyone who's been through a, a really hard divorce, if you ever talk to a divorce attorney, they'll tell you there's often uh, somebody on the sidelines who's inflaming the conflict, right? Who's framing everything as a humiliation, even when it's not. And they might have good intention, they might not. Whatever the case, they are exploiting the conflict for their own ends, consciously or subconsciously. And so we as a country, I think, are extremely vulnerable right now to conflict entrepreneurs um, and conflict entrepreneur companies, right, who make a profit off of, off of high conflict. Um, and sometimes people don't know they're doing it. And I think we're all capable of being conflict entrepreneurs on social media. I know I think a lot about that. You know, how not, I'm going to wake up today and not be a conflict entrepreneur. <laughs> you know, that's goal one. But I do think that um, a lot of our pre-existing divisions are just really easy to exploit right now for, for conflict on murders and, and for other countries as well, as we've seen. So it's just, we're in a kind of a vulnerable position. I actually think one of the best examples you gave of this in the book was gang conflict. You know, I was, uh, I've been a gang and homicide prosecutor for, for seven years prior to doing what I'm doing now. And you give this great example in the book about high conflict, conflict entrepreneurs and how things get started with actually bad information. Tell, tell us about that example and, and why you thought that was so, you know, so necessary to be part of the book. Yeah, actually love that you are one of the few people who knows quite a bit about gang violence and politics. Like those are two worlds that don't, don't always intersect. See, I, I tell people that they're actually pretty similar a lot of the time. I feel they like. are. I know I'm totally serious. They are. I say that, but people laugh, but like you could say it and actually people might <laughs> believe you because I mean, there are differences that are important, right? But again, people join gangs for a sense of belonging and protection and status, right? there is something very human about that. And increasingly, I think people are looking to politics to provide a sense of belonging, right, and identity. Um, and sometimes it does that, and sometimes it fails miserably. But um, so in the book, I talk about Curtis Toller, who was, um, uh, he joined his first gang on the south side of Chicago when he was nine years old. Um, you'll appreciate this, Chris, that he joined the wrong gang by mistake. Um, he joined the Latin Kings. He thought he was Latino and he was not. Um, so his cousins pretty quickly set him straight and he switched and he joined another gang. But again, the point is he was just trying to fit in, you know, in his, in his neighborhood. And, you know, just like anyone, it, they try on different identities. He tried on different gangs 
until he found one that fit, um, which in this case was the Black Peastone Nation. And then um, when he was a teenager, his high school, his childhood hero, everybody's childhood hero on the south side of Chicago, a basketball, high school basketball star who was nationally ranked and you know just famous um, in, in their world. He was shot to death uh, in broad daylight outside of his high school one day. And Curtis was just, you know, devastated. But the thing is, he had a story for why it had happened. He had a story um, because the person who had done it was in the Gangster Disciples, which was a rival gang. And so he locked onto that story because it gave him a way to process the pain that he was feeling, that this couldn't just happen for no reason. How can you live in a world where that kind of violence can happen for no reason? And so he spent years in a vendetta leading his own organization in a vendetta with the gangster disciples and a lot of pain and suffering, uh, you know, came off of that until eventually many things happened and he realized that the story he'd been telling himself wasn't true. Um, and that, that often happens in high conflict. It's the most heartbreaking part is that the stories we tell ourselves, they might be partly true, but there's oftentimes a lot of noise and it obscures things. And eventually we start harming the thing we hold most dear. So, you know, Curtis went in looking for protection and belonging, and that's not what he got. And so often that's the case. You know, the, the one thing that I think is interesting about that example, though, is he, he was looking for these personal connections, right? I mean, they were outside of his, his neighbor, in his neighborhood, people he could reach and touch and talk to, whether that's a replacement for a dad or a brother or whatever. But it was interesting now, it seems like people are getting a lot, looking for those same things, but they're not interpersonal. It's like it's virtual as opposed to a person in the neighborhood. I mean, do you, do you see that as a kind of a big distinction? Yeah, it's interesting. And I think that has evolved, too, for gangs, right? So most gang violence today uh, begins on social media. So you have this kind of proxy battlefield where people can try to get connection, like you said, um, and they can also try to get respect and they can try to broadcast disrespect. All of this is uh, ways to, again, pursue the same sense of superiority or belonging. And it's just magnified and broadcast out at scale. So what Curtis Toller does today is a lot of his time, he works for Chicago Cred, which is a a pretty impressive organization in Chicago that tries to interrupt gang violence. And a lot of their work is is monitoring social media um, and trying to get there before that cycle of revenge um, kicks off, right? So a lot of it is helping members of gangs who want to leave the conflict, and there are a lot of those guys, um, helping them set up some basic rules of engagement for social media, things they will and will not say, so that they can interrupt that cycle and get just buy a little time from the conflict. And that tends to work better than most other things that have been tried. So it's kind of, for me, I don't know what you think, Chris, but I feel like there's an interesting analogy there for the rest of us. Like, are there rules of engagement that we could all agree to, or not all of us, right, but a lot of us for social media to make the conflict less toxic? Is that something that might be better for the users to do rather than the platforms to do? I don't know. What do you think? Look, I think it's always, you know, better if people can sort of self-regulate, right? But I, I think that where's the incentive structure, I think is the question, right? And that's a, maybe I try to flip that back, right? If, if all of the incentives are to have high conflict, if I, 
you know, if I said something, if I got off here and I did a press conference, Amanda, and I said something really, you know, crazy, I'm probably going to end up on national news, right? There, there could be an incentive there. Your Twitter followers go up, your Facebook followers go up. So if that's the incentives, how do you combat when all of the incentives say drive clicks, you know, drive, drive to the incendiary quote, you know, how do you deal with that? Yeah. And the same with journalism, right? I mean, it's the same as an attention economy model. So how do you interrupt that? I mean, I do think you could design a social media platform that rewarded something else. Would it be as profitable? Probably not. Would it be profitable? For sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like, you, you know, we forget that humans design these things and, and humans design other platforms that work pretty well. Like if you look at Wikipedia, I was just reading a study of comments and back and forth on Wikipedia and something like, you know, 1% had sort of negative toxic language, like really small. And the same is true, you know, on a lot of other platforms like LinkedIn for the most part or platforms where I had to, a few months ago, I had to fix the, uh, the fill valve in my toilet. This is glamorous life that I live. And um, I hadn't done that before. And, you know, immediately there were like 25 very friendly people online who had posted videos and were very encouraging with comments. And, you know, it was, it was the kind of room that you could that you would want to create, right? But it's just a different norms, different set of incentives. So I do think people are capable of that. And most of us want to be in a room that is less poisonous. I think if we, you know, we told a group of people, okay, gang members and politicians are, are locked in high conflict, they probably would shake their head and say, well, you know, of course. But you use this example about Gary, who's a really professional mediator, who's, you know, his whole life is designed around avoiding this high conflict. But he he runs for office, you know, he runs for, for political office in his small town and, and tell us tell us what happened and, and make us feel a little better that it's not just the gang members and the politicians. Yeah, this was amazing because Gary is like one of the wisest people I know. He trained me in conflict mediation. He's helped thousands of people through really, really awful conflicts from, you know, labor walkouts to ugly divorces. He's written books on the subject. He's taught negotiation classes, you know, and so when he ran for office, it just made so much sense, right? It was like, okay, he's going to fix politics in his little tiny neck of the woods um, in Northern California. And as he put it, it took him about an eighth of a second before he fell into high conflict. And he lost two years of his life and peace of mind to what seemed like really small time feuds in his town. But it was incredibly alienating and also created a sort of existential crisis for him, right? Because if, if, if he couldn't overcome the lure of toxic conflict in politics, then who can? So the good news is he figured out what was happening um, and he managed to extract himself from high conflict and create good conflict without resigning, um, although he almost resigned. But <laughs> so he did do that and he's much better off for it. And so is the town, like way more got done after that, then in the two years, he was like, quote unquote, at war with his opponents. So uh, it was really a fascinating, I think, look at, at even somebody who's, who's well trained and fall into this. How do you spot it, right? So if you could go back and sort of advise Gary before he kind of gets in that situation, you're his friend, you know, you sit down with him and you say, hey, this is, you know, this is, you need to be spotting this high conflict that's coming. What are the things that you would say that people need to look for? Yeah, that's actually a fun exercise, thought exercise. So one of the things that he did that was a red flag was that he started dividing his neighbors into two camps. Remember, we talked about these sort of false binary groups. So even in his little town, you really couldn't 
divide everybody <laughs> into two groups. But he did, in his own mind and with his political advisor, one of his neighbors. Um, they called his side the new guard and the other side the old guard, um, which was sort of hilarious because, you know, Gary was in his 70s and had, was one of the oldest people running for office. But in his mind, he was the upstart. He was the change agent, right? So it was a very flattering portrayal. And you lose things. You lose the sort of granular reality of, of the complexity of humans when you do that, um, even at a small scale like that. So that was one thing. And the other thing is they started using a sort of grandiose language of war, which is a pretty much a, you know, a sign that you're at risk of high conflict. It's something conflict entrepreneurs do a lot. And because his political advisor was a seasoned political operative in real life, like outside of this small time campaign that she was a, an organizer. So she just applied the same, you know, rules of engagement that she used in the high conflict at the national level onto this little town. Understandably so, um, because that is how she understood politics. And that is how our politics is designed. But in this case, you know, it was so ridiculous, because she was talking about killing the other side, calling them right wing thugs, you know, and just really um, over the top language that I think we use all the time in, in politics, but it was particularly absurd at the at this kind of very local level. So those are things I, I watch out for in my own head, <laughs> because one of the things I've learned is, look, you can't stop other people from going into high conflict. People ask me this a lot. They're like, okay, okay, but what if the other side won't fight fair? <laughs> you know, And it's like, yeah, I know, that's always the problem, right? And you can't control a lot of people's behaviors. You can't control anyone's behavior. You can't control a lot of the incentives that we talked about, a lot of the structural problems. So you at least can try to control your own head, right? Like how you think about the conflict. So for me, I notice when I start to, when my brain starts to clarify everything into two groups, you know, and I try to catch myself because I know I'm making a mistake when I do that. And I try to get curious about what doesn't fit in that, that narrative that I'm telling myself? What am I missing here? Because I promise you I'm missing something. I love the idea that, uh, you know, Gary kind of putting people in the two camps and using that kind of high fluid messaging. And he's, he's also simplifying the message, right? He's making it easy to say and understand. And this is maybe a good conversation between a journalist and a politician, right? Because I think so many elected leaders find themselves in a situation like, well, there's nuance here. But if I talk too much about the nuance, you know, maybe I feel like present company excluded, the journalist isn't going to pick up on the nuance or write about the nuance. Also, if we're being honest, a lot of times the nuance is boring and nobody really wants to talk about nuance. Nuance is, you know, I want, I want headlines. I want, you know, I don't want nuance. I mean, that's boring. So, so how do you engage where if you care about the messaging, but you really, you really do want to give a holistic view of, of the conversation you're having, whatever the issue is, how do you do that and not lose the messaging? I think a couple of things. First, we are living through this very strange time where conflict has actually become cliche. So just doing another, you know, campaign where you attack the opponent, call them the same names and do this. I mean, and the same with journalism, right? Just doing another headline and story about who said what to the other side, and there's a smackdown on Twitter, or whatever. I mean, it's actually quite boring at this point. And if you look at what content becomes viral online, and I've, I've looked at the research, it's kind of amazing. Because I think journalists have this story we tell ourselves, and maybe politicians too, I don't know, that, you know, it's an attention economy, we need clickbait, people won't read it if it's complicated. And I think there's some truth to that. But right now, you know, what goes viral, things that are surprising, 
things that are counterintuitive, things that are funny, right? Uh, things that offer hope. So I don't know about you, but when I scroll through the headlines on my phone this morning, I was like, oh my God, is this like satire? Like every single headline was like, things are terrible and getting worse. You know, <laughs> it was like, okay, that might be true. It can't be the whole picture, but it, it's kind of at a certain point, I'm desensitized to it, you know, which isn't great. So, so I think there's right now great opportunity in offering people something different. It can't be too complicated. You're right. In the research, what you find is in high conflict, the best thing to do is first complicate the narrative that people have in their head because it's surprising. It sparks curiosity. And then you simplify it again. So you kind of got to go in and out, right? So you're right. You can't leave people with just like, unbelievable uh, quantum physics level of complexity. But I think right now, a little bit of complexity tethered to reality is surprising and refreshing in a weird way. I have a buddy of mine who said the best investment he ever made for his mental well-being was buying a $7 alarm clock. So the first thing he didn't look at when he woke up in the morning was his phone, you know, because he checked the time and then get on social media. It's an interesting thing that I think I, uh, I totally get why people want sort of the positive content. How do you do that in politics, though, right? So, you know, part of, I think, the, the, the concern among elected leaders is I don't want to, you know, nobody wants to make it look like they're capitulating or compromising on a, on a core belief, you know, something that's very, very important to them. And I think that's hard in today's politics because with the incentive structure we talked about before, right? I want to be a believer uh, without any people thinking that I'm, you know, that I'm giving up. So how do people have those sort of conversations when if I think if you're being honest, most people in the political space are afraid to have those conversations or at least afraid to have them publicly? Everybody's in in their uh, trenches, right? And when you feel threatened by the other side, it's very hard to feel curious. When we have over half the country voting defensively in national elections, so in other words, they're voting against the other side, regardless of whether it's for their side, that position is a very hard one because any there any deviation right will be perceived as an additional threat so some of it is lowering the sensation of threat right like how do we get out of our foxholes i don't know i mean i guess i'd have to it'd be insane not to turn it around and ask you chris like have you ever seen that happen in recent memory what do you think i think it happens i think it happens privately i think it's difficult to do it publicly because people get too worried about, you know, what people are going to think. But I, I do think it happens privately, probably more often than people think, which is good. That's interesting. I can speak to reporters more readily than politicians. I think there is a lot of fear that if they deviate from the party line um, that their audience wants to see, whatever that might be, they'll get attacked. And part of this is they're, um, they're kind of weighing a small number of extreme voices, they're giving them too much weight, right? Because that's who's on Twitter. So part of this, again, you could design Twitter in such a way or other uh, platforms in such a way that each message was calibrated. So you could easily tell from like, say the font size, how representative it was of the American public. But right now, you know, eight out of 10 Americans do not use Twitter. Um, so using that as your sort of daily focus group about whether you're, you matter and whether you're going to be okay in the world is a bad idea and leads to more extremism. I was just talking to a, a, a chief of staff on the Senate side the other day, and she was saying how if her boss does anything that looks remotely reasonable towards the other side, her phones light up. 
that's, again, she's getting feedback from constituents, but is it representative? Like, is that your average constituent? I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think you've talked about this, right? It's not just 20% of people are on Twitter, but the percentage of people who actually tweet that are on Twitter, you know, it's really just what, it's just a small fraction. Right. I think, yeah, it's like 97% of political tweets come from like 1% of users or something. Our kind of joke around the, the Florida house with our, you know, it's like, God, Twitter's not real, right? It's not, it's not a real sampling. You know, it's, you know, you go door to door in your, which is, you know, I think one of the benefits of, you know, the state government versus federal government is federal governments are driven by the news, but our folks actually knock on the doors of their constituents and they're having conversations with real people, not people on Twitter, which I do think is the reason why maybe states don't suffer from the same ailments. Have you, have you seen that? Have you experienced that? I think the same is true with local reporting, right? So local news media outlets, especially local TV, are sort of the last trusted media outlets. And even then, the trust is very fragile, but it's trusted across the political divide to some degree. And I think that's partly because there's some ground truth. You know what I mean? Like if if the stoplight across town is out, everybody can see that with their own eyes. Um, so there's that. But also you get that human interaction, like you might actually run into this person at the grocery store, which we are going to our brains are going to prioritize negative and threatening messages like that would be counter to our survival if we didn't. So again, I don't blame reporters or politicians for overemphasizing um, the voices of extremists. That's kind of how we're wired. I do feel like we could do better as far as helping politicians and reporters um, get a sense of what their audiences really think. I mean, I don't think we've reached the upper limits of what technology can do for us when it comes to un- listening to our constituents. What do you tell journalists? I mean, we, uh, as a politician, right, there's, there's certainly very little, I think, trust between elected leaders, certainly Republican elected leaders and, and the press. Um, I've actually had a really interesting experience where there was a headline that, you know, kind of accused a wide group of particular elected leaders of, uh, you know, caring more about, you know, this issue than their, than children. You know, it's very, very kind of uh, highfalutin. And I actually politely uh, confronted those, those folks who wrote that article and wrote that editorial and said, hey, listen, um, do you actually think that's true? I'm just curious. And they all said no. Oh, so what was the context? Were you in person talking to them? Yeah. So the, yeah, the, I was in person talking to them. I actually had showed up for a kind of a, a editorial board interview and, and, uh, and said, Hey, listen, you know, you guys wrote this uh, headline. So I want you to know, do you really think I care more about that issue than my own children or your children? I'd be really curious to know that. And, and to their, I guess, to their credit, they all said, no, no, I don't actually think that that's true. Now the downside of that is they actually wrote it. Um, so I think it kind of shows and illustrates that when you're in front of somebody, you know, then the the dynamics change, but still the incentive was have that headline because maybe more people are going to click on it. It's more exciting. It it draws attention to the issue. So what do you tell journalists? Well, first of all, I I also think it mattered, I suspect, that you you asked a question. You weren't just like, F you, you think I care more about it. (laughs) (laughs) You actually asked them. And I do think that that's a very, again, underappreciated maneuver right now that is um, more powerful than people think. So I would encourage the next time someone gets a kind of blowback on social media to respond in that exact way with genuine curiosity. Do you really think that I don't care about poor people or children or old people or whatever it is? So I do trainings for newsrooms and journalists all over the country. And it's so funny, Chris, because a lot of them not all. A lot of them feel very trapped by the conflict. 
it's not unlike talking to politicians. You know, they are in this system and that doesn't excuse everything, right? Um, but they are kind of, they feel like a cog in a wheel, right? If they, there's not a lot of room to maneuver. Often reporters, so one thing that's good to know is reporters don't write headlines. Editors do, right? And, and you may know this, but I don't know that most people know that. And I don't know that it should be that way, but it is that way. So you can, and I've been there, you can write like a 2,000 word story that you've fact-checked within an inch of its life and really tried to get things right and make it complicated and, you know, fair and reasonable and interesting. And then the headline will just smash it flat. And, and that's not up to me. I literally don't get a vote on the headline. So that's a systems problem, right? Just like the whole financial incentive is a problem that, that editors are using these headlines in order to get clicks. There's also a cultural problem, and it's always hard to know what percentage is caused by what, but I think there's these conventions in newsrooms that are very slow to change, you know, and a belief that people won't click on a story if the headline is more surprising. <laughs> you know, I think that eventually the only trusted uh, sources of information will be organizations that do this differently, and it may not be in traditional j- journalism, right? What I hope is that they're not just propaganda outlets that people get their information from, but I don't know. I I think that's unclear. The truth is you can't survive without trust. I was just talking to a trust researcher about this, and it was so interesting because I had kind of just concluded, oh, there's not enough trust. That's the problem. We need more trust. Well, people do trust things. You know, you can't go through the day without trusting something, you know, like, I just got my booster shot. Like, did I run a randomized controlled clinical study of the vaccine? I did not. In my living room? No, I did not. So I trusted someone. I trusted some organization. When we have no consensus about whom to trust and when the organizations people are trusting do not have their best interests at heart, then we get into real trouble. So I think the most exciting places to be right now in journalism are local newsrooms that are dramatically, dramatically reinventing how you listen to audiences, how you link arms with your audiences, how you deputize your audiences and stop sort of, you know, talking to them from on high. It's interesting. I, I feel that same way about politics, right? I think kind of the, the real place to be now is is in your state governments rather than you're not getting caught up in the national news cycle of Washington, D.C. and all the nonsense that happens. So I think that's one of the things that we've had the opportunity to do in state government is really engage on issues and engage with real people and come up with with solutions that aren't kind of bogged down by noise. Do you think it's possible? Like if you were to advise someone who was thinking of going into politics at the state level, do you think it's possible to get things done in good conflict? I really do. And I I actually think Florida is a a pretty good example of this is that, look, I'd say 80, 90% of the bills that pass, you know, are are widely bipartisan. Um, I think that the national conversation has not dripped down as much to the states. And I I always tell people who want to run for the state house or state Senate, that I think it's one of the last great places in public service where you can get a lot done and still live a pretty ordinary life. Like most people aren't stopping you at the supermarket because they don't really know who you are. Where I think Washington is like the opposite problem. They know who you are, but you can't get anything done. Yeah, it's so funny you say that because when I talk to members of Congress, they are they do miss the days when a lot of them worked in state government before and they had real meaningful relationships across the aisle where they could have real conversations and disagree profoundly and, and still get things done. Um, But it is funny, Chris, I'll tell you, as an outsider who's reading the national news, 
when I think of Florida, I don't think of it as a place that is currently in good conflict um, because every story I see, right, is about, you know, conflict with national laws or regulation over COVID. So there's a good example, right, about how I'm seeing like a sliver of what you're seeing. I also think it's always interesting, you know, there's been times where we've had these big issues that get all this attention by the media. And then I go home and I actually talk to the people I represent. They don't even bring that issue up. I'm just totally shocked. I think it's a good reminder that sometimes, whether it's in politics or journalism or DC, there's like this bubble and it's just like this echo chamber that happens, like Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same problem, right? Like we get such a distorted view of what is on people's minds. But the, I mean, the thing is, that's, that's crazy, right? Like we could actually now more than ever have a, a really good sense of what's on people's minds, like people writ large, not just activists. I don't know. It feels like there's, there's, a, there's a lot of opportunity there and there's certainly a lot of demand. And I don't know, I, I've, I have a lot of confidence in the American marketplace. And if there's huge demand, unmet demand for a different kind of politics, a different kind of journalism, eventually I have to believe that it will get supplied in some creative way. Well, I think you're in a good position to lead us off with this book that you've written. Uh, it really is just a, a great book, Amanda, about you know solution-oriented um, items for high conflict, how to get out, how to notice it. So thanks so much for, for writing. I know it's helpful for me, and I encourage other people to read it. Thanks so much, Chris. I really appreciate it.